No one writes in a vacuum. The places where writers sit inevitably shape the characters they create and the stories they tell. Well, here's the story of a place. It's a place filled with memorable characters. One of them was a great entrepreneur. One of them was the first Englishman to set foot in Russia. One of them was Queen Elizabeth, and one of them was Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. While what we know about William Shakespeare is about as much as we would about any middle-class Englishman of his time, there's plenty that's known about his stomping grounds. London in the time of Shakespeare was a city in the midst of a phenomenal metamorphosis. During the course of Shakespeare's professional life, the city experienced a meteoric transition rocketing from the capital of the hinterlands to a cosmopolitan city on its way to becoming the capital of the Western world. Stephen Alford, a professor of early modern British history at the University of Leeds, tells the story of this breathtaking rise in his new book, London's Triumph, Merchants, Adventurers, and Money in Shakespeare's City. He came in recently to talk about a place that Shakespeare helped shape and one that clearly helped shape Shakespeare. We call this podcast wander up and down to view the city. Stephen Alford is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I didn't realize until I read your book just how explosive and dramatic London's growth was heading into Shakespeare's time. And for instance, you write that England in 1500 was a marginal backwater, that English was a minor language, and that Spain and Portugal had practically carved up the whole world between them. Why don't you flesh out the rest of this picture of England for us at this time to give us a baseline? The baseline is that England was a second, third-rate marginal power on the fringes of um, the European mainstream. It's connected to Europe through all kinds of interesting, but still very early in developing intellectual networks. London is a mercantile satellite of Antwerp. That's where deals were done. And London merchants went over to Antwerp to sell their cloth. So still a kingdom that is beginning to kind of find its feet. And in many ways, it's kind of being pushed back. Calais is the final outpost of spoken English and of English power, but Calais is lost to the French uh, in 1558. So we're thinking about a kingdom that is very much on the on the margins. But then just a century later, as you write, London is booming and, and you have this amazing uh, population explosion. It, the population yes. is quadrupled, practically, right? And you have these ships full of silk and caviar and tobacco practically clogging the the Thames. And, and it was a cosmopolitan place with this thriving exchange and, and global reach. So just simply addressing population, how did that happen, given, as you say, that, that there was a very high level of mortality, rate of mortality in, in London specifically, and it really seemed like all the odds were stocked against the city? Mm. It's immigration, and that's one of the key strands of the whole picture and the whole story. Immigration from abroad, which was uh, a hot topic, um, with strangers, with foreigners, fleeing persecution uh, in France, in the Low Countries, the Netherlands, Belgium, and finding new homes, 
But also, I think the story of London is one of an internal immigration. Really, thousands upon thousands of very ordinary people seeking work, seeking livelihoods, escaping the countryside, make their way into the city, especially in the second half of the 16th century. And London acted as, as an enormous kind of processor of, of human capital. It needed people to keep the city running. Uh, the merchants' companies needed apprentices and, and drew those apprentices from all over the kingdom. So the, the, the city, in a sense, kind of drags people into it. And that not only kind of counterweights those deep problems of plague, disease, low birth rate, um, but it kind of accelerates the population in really in a, mar- a remarkable way. So you have people flooding in from all over Europe, but also all over England. And as you yes. say, many of them are refugees, religious refugees, uh, fleeing religious persecution. I want to dig into that a little bit. Why was London such an attractive haven? Protection was offered by Edward VI, by Elizabeth the first. Um, London, I think, was attractive also because it was, um, of course, a commercial centre. And many of these strangers had skills that London needed. So printing, for example. Skilled printers from the Low Countries are able to, to help uh, London printers kind of improve their skill set um, and the quality of what they're able to produce. And pulling the lens back a, a, a little bit, was the English Reformation done in such a different way than the European Reformation that that England itself was a haven? Yes. I mean, the texture of the Reformations across Europe are very different. I think the great attractiveness of the English scene was its its relative peacefulness. That's not how it felt at the time. Um, Elizabethan politicians, councillors of the Queen felt that theirs was a kingdom that was pretty much from the beginning always under threat. They sensed that um, invasion, catastrophe <laughs> were just around the corner. Um, and yet they're able to kind of maintain peace. And it's so different to the civil wars of France or the uh, reality of Spanish armies, Catholic armies, moving through to crush Protestant opposition in the Netherlands. So you had these religious refugees just flooding in from all over Europe and, and, and Africa as well, right? And you, you give an example of London's diversity at, at the time. The list includes French merchants and Dutch craftsmen and Italians who had bowling alleys and, and uh, yes. a handful of Africans, at least, and foreign teachers and printers and doctors and, and you know, wide-eyed boys and girls from across England. I think that's the, that's the quote from you. This ha- must have made London such a cosmopolitan and a dynamic place. But what was uh, the backlash? How did Londoners react to all of these strangers and foreigners? So in many ways, there was a mixed response to strangers in London, welcomed as co-religionists, but a lot of suspicion about the uh, economic opportunities uh, that they were pursuing. Um, And I think that was a threat that was perceived both by the elite, um, who are very, very wary 
of the ability of, of merchant strangers to kind of find their own little kind of nooks and crannies of the city and evade the jurisdiction of the city government. And it's certainly true on behalf of apprentices and of poorer Londoners who feel that they're kind of being pushed out of work by um, stranger immigrants. And this ambivalence and this conflict, it was reflected in the theatre of time. You see it in Shakespeare, but you also see it in other playwrights of the time, including uh, a play that you mentioned called The Shoemaker's Holiday by Decker. And why don't you tell us what that what that is about and what, what you found interesting and illustrative in that play? A Shoemaker's Holiday, yeah, it's an interesting, in many ways, kind of historicised sort of reality of, of strangers in, in the city, um, of uh, a forbidden love between the nephew of an earl, the Earl of Lincoln, uh, who falls in love with the daughter of a, of a Lord Mayor of the city. And, and in order to kind of break up the relationship, the Earl sends his nephew off to fight in France. But the Earl's nephew disguises himself as, as a shoemaker. But he's not an English shoemaker, he's a Dutch Shoemaker. So the whole thing is really kind of play on this character pretending to be a shoemaker. He has kind of mock patois Dutch. And my, my sense of it is that Londoners were fully acquainted with this kind of individual. They'd seen Dutch tradesmen um, in, in their city. Uh, Decker's able to kind of poke gentle fun at the position of, uh, of this individual. You, you can see that it kind of speaks to the, the, the kind of nuanced humour of Londoners, kind of recognising this sort of stranger reality all around them. And you write that you also see this in, in the play Sir Thomas More, which yes. has a complicated authorship story, which includes Decker and others. And uh, there's a scene that some people attribute to Shakespeare. And I mention it because it's a scene that deals with the hostility and ambivalence Londoners felt for strangers. Tell us about that. Yes, this is a far sharper work uh, than The Shoemaker's Holiday. About the same kind of date. It's about 15 Hundred, and it looks back to uh, the so-called evil May Day of fifteen seventeen, and the central character is Thomas Moore, as an under sheriff of London. As you say, there's got a critical moment, which appears to be the work of Shakespeare where you've got all these native Londoners wanting the strangers to pack their bags to get out of the kingdom. And Moore makes this impassioned speech, uh, which speaks to their humanity. Uh, and Moore says, grant them removed, you know, grant these strangers removed from the country, and grant that this your noise hath chid down all the majesty of England. Imagine that you see the wretched strangers, their babies at their backs, with their poor luggage, plodding to the ports and coasts for transportation. It's great kind of impassioned speech. Wow, so um, a plea for, for empathy. Humanity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Empathy, humanity over individual and financial gain. It's a very powerful piece of theatre. Um, well, I'm sure top of mind, but what, what do we know of Shakespeare's familiarity with foreigners in the city, whether he was writing from first-hand experience? I think it must have been. He was lodging with a French family in the city, and I think Shakespeare, like other dramatists in London, must have been you know, able to observe these uh, French, Dutch, Italian communities at close hands. Many of these communities were kind of on the edges of the city. I mean, literally on the edges of the city as well as kind of on the edges of city life. 
It's such a fascinating time because at the same time that London is getting flooded with with all of these foreigners, you have English merchants and adventurers flooding foreign markets. And and you argue that trade and exploration were what elevated London to a world-class city. And a big part of, of this chapter of the city's history involves the creation of what's known as the exchange, yes. which I think everyone in England knows what that is. But why don't you tell us Americans, what what, what was the exchange? What is it? And, and why was it so important? <laughs> The exchange was Thomas Gresham's exchange. Sir Thomas Gresham was a member of one of the great uh, mercantile dynasties. And Gresham's ambition was to bring to London the kind of centre of, of mercantile life that other cities, Paris, but preeminently Antwerp, had, where merchants would meet, where merchants would literally exchange instruments of money for moving money around Europe. They're basically there. So everyone was um, doing this in the street before this? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the great complaints about London by those around the city, by members of the city establishment, is that London suffered the indignity of its merchants standing on the streets in all weather doing this kind of trade. In all um, kinds of you know, terrible weather. <laughs> in all kinds of terrible weather. This is this is a consistent complaint over decades. They're standing there in rain and sleet, you know. So it was more than, say, a stock exchange <clears throat> or a shopping center or a bank. It, it seems to combine or encompass all of those things. Yes. Gresham's Exchange is a place for merchants. But as you say, it's a place for shopping of, of very high-end goods, attracting elite purses. The gentry uh, kind of hang out there. It's a place of um, gossip, of promenading. It's a place where people buy books. It's a place of exchange in so many ways. It's an exchange of news and information and intelligence. And a place to get robbed blind, it sounds like. (laughs) There was plenty where there is that much money and and willing, wealthy people. There were criminals, and you described some uh, lovely ones. Tell us about some of the shady business that went on there. And I've always liked the term finger. Yes, Uh, the cheater, the The fingerer. It's a kind of fancy pickpocket, is that right? It is basically a pickpocket, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But fancy, Um, not... not, Yes, yes. uh, You know, someone who's posing... Disguised gentlemen uh, who would befriend real gentlemen, would take them to dinner, would con them out of money, um, as well as cut yeah, mm-hmm. basically as well as cut purses, picking pockets, begging, uh, and the exchange was really a magnet. Now, heading before I read your book, I had a kind of chicken and the egg question, which is: I knew London built this exchange to facilitate trading of all kinds, but. I wasn't sure whether they had the goods to to trade in it first or whether they built the exchange to to make a mark to put London on the map and then said, oh, no, what are we going to trade? And Mm. then they took off on this amazing age of, of exploration. In a sense, it's a little of both. I'm not entirely sure I can solve the chicken and egg issue. So they um, coincided, it sounds like. They do. They and, do. They do, I think. And, and, it yes. was, and this exchange was another driving force for this explosive change for London. And, and as you tell it, the, the, one of the big stories in this period is the search um, by the English for a route to China. Uh, which yes. the English called at the time Cathay. So, Cathay, so what did yeah. the English know about China at at the time that made them so eager to get there? 
they thought that it was an empire ruled over by um, probably the greatest prince of the world, the great Khan or the great Cham, but a kingdom or an empire of um, immense wealth, that it was probably pretty cold. Uh, so clearly, you know, the subjects of the great Cham would need English cloth. So they think that here is a great empire with riches, with um, sort of rich luxury goods that can be traded for good old warm English cloth. So they were sure of that, but there, a lot of things were just made up, it sounds like. Yes. The great Khan yeah. lived in a city, what, Cambaloo? Uh, Kambaloo yes. or something? And yes. it, it just yeah. seems such an interesting mix of fiction and, and reality. It is. It's an absolute kind of conflation of fiction, reality. But some of the great kind of authorities of the day, the cartographic authorities of the day, like um, Abraham Ortelius, they're convinced that Cathay existed. You know, you, you, you look at it on uh, middle 16th century maps, it's there. You see the rivers, you see the towns, you see the cities. So in a sense, it's both imaginative, but also has this kind of um, physical existence. You know, it's kind of there. Um, and it's that kind of navigational story, which is a story of accident, happenstance, disappointment, and great breakthrough also um, that I was really interested in kind of unpicking in the in the book. Which is embodied by Sebastian Cabot. He was trying to find China, but he, first he ran into America. And then, and then the very interesting part of the story as well, he ran into Russia instead. Yes, they bump into Russia entirely by accident. The story of the Cabot expedition is the Edwardian expedition of 1552-1553, where the notion is to send ships um, to the northeast, over the top of Scandinavia, over the top of Asia, which of course they thought was you know, entirely navigable. It would be perfectly straightforward. And they'd drop down and they would find Cathay. I, love, I have to say I love the catchy name of the trading company that he found. The mystery and company of the merchant's adventurers for the discovery of regions, dominions, islands, and places unknown. I made an acronym for it. It's a Makamaf Dordipu. Good thing he wasn't a namer for his profession. It, it doesn't. It doesn't trip easily off the tongue, does it? I think that the the Muscovy Company does it. You know, the Muscovy Company is fine. Yeah, they really nailed it later. That's true. But I, but it the fact a... that mystery was part of the name because they really were taking a leap into the dark, and they they knew it. Yes, yeah. And it's kind of got that um, that sort of medieval sense to it, which is really interesting when you kind of put it alongside this new world that's being opened up in a physical way, in an, in an imaginative way. You know, that they're working on some evidence, you know, that they're working from some sources, but they're essentially making it up. It's wild, too, that they set sail for Cathay in uh, 1553 with what sounds like just an extraordinary letter from King Edward VI. Yes, yes, yes. To all the, the princes and potentates that they were bound to bump into um, on the way, um, opening up an era of, um, of friendship and collaboration and cooperation and seeing that mercantile contact with the whole world is the the key to sort of friendship, um, which is really interesting, you know, when, when you, you look at some of the motivations here, which are, you know, exclusive trading monopolies and profit 
by the English, of the English, at the expense of, of anyone else. So there are interesting tensions, I think, sort of built into the, into the whole operation as they're kind of feeling their way very slowly into it. So um, three ships started out, but only two, and, and not the flagship, landed in Russia. And yes. all three could have perished. And as you say, it was just so happenstance, accident, fortuitous that they run into into Russia and it ushers in even more prosperity for London. You, you say this failure actually to reach China ended up forming a, a connection that was the main reason London became the capital city of a mercantile empire. What, what was so valuable about the Muscovy Company and the trade with Russia? It was the kind of trade that was opened up, uh, which was valuable from the start, Russia gave London and Londoners and London merchants directly, uh, direct access rather to all kinds of raw materials and um, commodities, furs, train oil, caviar, that previously had made their way into Europe but very indirectly and distantly for English merchants. I think what the Muscovy Company shows also is that meeting of mercantile power, intellectual know-how, in a sense there are brains behind this operation that are keyed into wider European networks of, of knowledge, and also political power. The Muscovy Company, from the beginning, has lots of important contacts around the the kings and then the queen's courts. So it's a very kind of powerful confluence of things that takes English merchants at first northwest and out towards Russia, but eventually on the same kind of mission takes them to North America. Well, we've been talking a lot about money and wealth and, and power, but London was also a city of tremendous poverty, just profound pro poverty. And you see in the accounts of this time, and you quote them, that uh, people refer to the deserving and the undeserving poor. So yes. how did Londoners at this time of, of such explosive uh, growth and, and the burgeoning prosperity think about the poor? The poor were categorized absolutely, as you say, in, in different ways um, of those who were poor through no fault of their own. Those poor people were, were helped. Uh, the social net was very, very thin indeed. There were alms houses. There was private charity. So th there was some support. But there's a great Elizabethan anxiety about poverty, especially those who were either feigning poverty, um, who were using poverty to get into the purses of the rich, who were pestering, that's a kind of common word, who were pestering the kind of elite outside on the streets, outside houses, with their begging bowls, who were fabricating their poverty. And for those there was a very different kind of system. Uh, no social net at all, but a system of um, corrective institutions, of hospitals, um, increasingly for London parishes, where parishes were expected to whip, to punish uh, the poor, and then kind of move them on to the parishes of their birth. Um, so the Elizabethan kind of descriptions of what poverty was and who the poor were were very, very different, with very different responses. 
Well, this brings us to the topic of money lenders, because where there's poverty and, and wealth and trade, there are money lenders. And really, there were always money lenders. Uh, but you do say that one of the most famous lines in Shakespeare sums up the life of London in Shakespeare's time. And it's his phrase, neither a borrower nor a lender be. So what did Elizabethans think about the lending of money? profoundly ambivalent. And I think that's one of the, I mean, for me, really sort of interesting strands of the book. Um, the, the book in many ways is is not just about a city. I mean, it's certainly about a city. It's certainly about the world beyond the city. It's about the Elizabethan imagination, I think, also, and about how Elizabethans and Jacobeans saw the world. And one of the, the, the strands of that, I, th- I think, is an uncertainty about money that we see dramatists playing with, that we see preachers getting into the pulpits um, to talk about, usury, lending money at at interest, is a kind of live issue for Elizabethans really kind of all the way through the reign of Elizabeth into the 17th century. So was The this, word is highly problematic. Was this ambivalence what you think Shakespeare was trying to convey by having Polonius say the line in, in Hamlet? Or do you think he had a more honing in on a more specific point? I think, he, I, to me, he, he speaks to a situation which was, by the time Shakespeare was writing, pretty untenable. I think what's really clear is that Elizabethans had um, a double standard when it came to money. They could denounce usury. Moralists weren't so keen on, uh, you know, what for us is a very neutral word, which is interest. It's a big anxiety there about how money was earned, about how money was generated. The reality is that I suppose in London, all kinds of Londoners uh, were drawn into webs and networks of lending. Small uh, loan sharking sort of seems to have been endemic throughout the city. The reality on a bigger scene was that kings and princes and states borrowed money. Right. And you see all these conflicts playing out in in Merchant of of Venice. But it's interesting that you mentioned the clergy. You know, you have the clergy preaching against, you know, neither or preaching neither borrower nor lender be, basically. Uh, And it reminded us of of someone we had on our our podcast a while back who um, was talking about uh, makeup, for instance, uh, in the Elizabethan time. And of course, the clergy preached against wearing makeup mm. and all of the clergy's sermons or some of the clergy's sermons were written down. So that's how we know they were preaching against wearing makeup. But that didn't mean normal women didn't wear makeup. Some certainly didn't. Obviously, the queen herself was positively spackled with it. Uh, <laughs> so what did people really think about it? Do we know? Was there really such a prejudice against usury or money lending? I think it's, it is it is hard to know. I, usury sermons are, are a kind of uh, genre. Preachers are getting into the pulpit and denouncing usury. Or you have civil lawyers, an interesting individual called Thomas Wilson, who writes a, a discourse on usury in which you have the characters of a merchant and uh, a merchant's apprentice, you know, who talk in very blunt terms about, well, you know, why bother risking anything? You know, we, we can just make our money generate more money. That's absolutely fine. There's an absolutely kind of un- self-conscious sense there of, um, well, it's money. It's a commodity. So I think that, that there is a tension there between, you know, the moralists between the pulpit, perhaps between the stage, 
and the day-to-day -day reality that increasingly even very ordinary merchants were able to lend money. They had to disguise that up to a certain point, but they were lending money, and that Elizabethans were borrowers as, as well as lenders. Yeah, and all of this makes it very hard to get a, a, a fix on history, especially when it's in these transition points, which is really the, the theme of your story. And in fact, I finished your book, and I asked myself whether there was a moral to it, you know, or if the rise of London was, was just a one-off, an, an anomaly of history. But the moral seemed to be that London uh, became this great global superpower by accident, that that's the overriding theme. Yes, I think accident and happenstance appear and reappear throughout the book. And, and, and there's almost a kind of chaos theory element to the story. I mean, it, it seemed to me in, in trying to make sense myself of London, of the scale, the complexity, the kind of underlying um, paradoxes, the, the successes, the failures, the limitations, just the, the whole kind of size of the place, um, that who knew what was going to happen? There's very little kind of conscious design behind, I think, a lot of it. Um, Although it's very tempting to see parallels to what's going on now. I mean, I have all sorts of dog-eared pages where I see parallels to today, to, to today in the discussion of the deserving and undeserving poor, of prejudice against refugees flooding England's borders, of Brexit and, and uh, the American story playing out uh, here now. Yes, absolutely. I think that's right. And for me, one of the, the kind of human interest elements of this is the familiarity and some of the resonances uh, and maybe some of the essential continuities of the human situation of finding, you know, of Elizabethans finding themselves, of all of us today finding ourselves in a sense in situations where we struggle with the paradox and the complexity. And I think that kind of strikes me as a resonance. Well, I hope as a resonance of the book that in a sense I, I didn't have to force um, <laughs> very much at all. Well, it's just fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for the book and, and for talking today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Stephen Alford is a professor of early modern British history at the University of Leeds. His book, London's Triumph, Merchants, Adventurers, and Money in Shakespeare's City, was published by Bloomsbury USA in 2017. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Wander Up and Down to View the City was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastner and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Gareth Dant, the University of Leeds Media Relations Manager, and Simon Moore, the university's communications assistant. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If you are, please do us a favor. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get this podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Michael Whitmore.